Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Open World Podcast. I recorded this interview live on location at a cafe because I'm traveling again at the moment. Uh, So I apologize for any background noise, but this was a great discussion. I was joined by Fabian Dittrich. He's a fellow vagabond and we have all kinds of exciting stuff for you in store. So thanks for listening and enjoy. He's the co-founder of Startup Diaries and Helpando.it. And Fabian, along with a couple of his buddies, has spent more than a year traveling overland across the Americas, running their biz remotely from a Land Rover wherever it's parked. Uh, They've they've been communicating with clients around the world and running their business while traveling in this Land Rover. It's pretty wild. And Fabian here has this long history. He's lived in Germany, Chile, Spain, England. He's also worked in IT startups like Zendesk. He's driven across sub-Saharan Africa singing and raising funds for underprivileged children in a Mercedes-Benz. And he's spoken at venues such as TEDx and DNX about the art of designing your own life and has some great stories to share about salmon, Jamaica, waterfalls, malaria, (laughs) and how all of these things connected the dots for him to help him create his own way in life. So if you're looking for inspiration, if you're looking for someone who's been around the block and, you know, stumbled a little bit but come out the other side and been stronger for it then you're going to be you're going to love this interview i'm super excited to have him here thank you so much for joining us fabian thanks danny for having me it's an honor being your show thanks thanks for reaching out buddy so <laughs> i know that you've been at this for a while how long have you been a nomad wow it's a it's hard to say i mean my first long-term travel trip was when i was 20 uh, I think that was in 2001 to Thailand, and since then I, I really never stopped traveling. So I think I would, I spent uh, uh, every year at least five, six months traveling since then. So for the last 14 years, I was I was always traveling at least uh, half a year of every year. Do you remember the moment back in 2001 where you decided, I love travel, like I want to do this forever? Was there something that changed you? <sighs> I don't think there was a particular moment. It was just, you know, getting into this flow of of of, of traveling, of uh, of being in the present. I think, and that for me was was Bangkok, Thailand, and some of the of the islands, uh, and then you know just uh, learning what it's like to to be a vagabond. You know, Rolf Potts has this amazing book called Vagabonding, where he a little bit sarcastically talk uh, talks about the difference between. Uh, tourist travelers and vagabonds, you know? and he would say, tourists are the guys, you know, the, the 50-year-old or, or retired people who are in a group of tourists and, and follow the guide, and travelers are the typical people with their lonely planet and following whatever is suggested by the lonely planet, and, and the vagabonds would just go to a place and sit on a bench or walk until the day becomes interesting, and then magically getting sucked into serendipitous moments and, and, and things that just happen uh, without you planning for it. And I fell in love with this kind of traveling, and in Thailand, this 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 kind of just seeing what's going to happen without having anything planned, and uh, I, I guess what's that's what you call when 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 people say you're infected with a travel bug. So that happened uh, very early in my life you know, when I was twenty. It's, it's called freestyle travel, or I've, I've actually referred to it as traveling blind. You know, like just traveling to a location with no plan, no itinerary, just freestyle. Oh, that's a good travel. that's a good way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> freestyle traveling. That's it. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what I did during my uh, my motorbike trip across Vietnam, and I I didn't have any places booked. I just show up in a town. I just you know sleep wherever I can. I I just spent a couple nights in a sauna because I had the Tet Festival going on, uh-huh. and uh, that was quite an adventure. I, I I've never regret taking a trip like that. But you really have some interesting things to say about uh, this kind of herd behavior, which is kind of similar to what you just mentioned with these uh, tourists who you know use Lonely Planet books. They take tourist companies, tourist trips. Um, they don't really want to do anything independently. And you actually get this analogy of everyone's walking up a waterfall in Jamaica and they're all walking in the same line. They're all holding hands. They're all following their guide's instructions. Why is it that you know, 90% of people 
or, or more than 90% of people all want to follow the herd rather than, you know, do things their own way? Oh, good question. Um, you know, it, it kind of reminds me of a scene in my life when I was 15, and, it, and, and I know it's still happening the same way. When I was 15, you know, we were just coming back from the break uh, in school. Uh, we were illegally smoking cigarettes behind the gym, listening to Nirvana and Guns N' Roses, coming back into the classroom. And <laughs> at one point in, in your school career, and it still happens the same way, a career counselor is uh, sent to your school, and uh, he stands there and tells you about that if you want to have a good life, if you want to find a good job, then you have to really watch out that your life is linear, that you take consistent decisions in terms of the internships you choose, that the future employer can see a common thread in your decisions so that you become a more employable person. The funny thing is that in German, the, way, the, the word that you use for employable is einstellbar. And einstellbar, the literal translation is adjustable. It means adjustable. So you have to, he, he told us, you guys have to live your life so you become a more adjustable person. And I was like, what is happening here? I mean, you can adjust a radio, right, to a certain frequency, or you can adjust a machine so it fits your needs. You know, it does what you want the machine to do. But with people, but, you know, I, I mentioned this in the talk I gave, and a father came up to me and he told me that his son is now 15, and it was exactly the same story 15 years later, right? So it, the, 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 the job counselor goes on and tells you, okay, you have two, two things you can do now. You can either do an apprenticeship, you know, you become a carpenter or something like that, or you study. And this is like these two options that, that, that it's imprinted in your head from very early on that there's only these two ways. And that you have to live your life so you become a more employable person. Huh? So it, it's kind of, you know, yeah. And, and back in the days, I already thought, man, that, that's not for me. I can't do that. And, you know, I... They're, they're um, not encouraging people then to be individuals then. They're, they're not encouraging them to be independent. It's just about um, becoming uh, a piece of the puzzle, you know, a piece of in right. society. Yeah, and the school system in Germany, you know, it was kind of invented when we needed soldiers. So when we needed people who just follow the rules, and since then it hasn't really been changed. So they want people that don't ask questions. They want people who, are, who don't think creatively. But we're not in a war anymore, so I don't, I don't <laughs> think we need those kind of people anymore. No. If, I, if I think so, back, you know, back in the days of uh, Prussia, you know, before Germany was, was formed and they had the general staff, and, uh, you know, the generals that would face off against Napoleon, they were all like, 75, 80 years old, you know, right. you couldn't become a general in the German uh, army, in the Prussian army, which, which preceded Germany, uh, until you were like 80 years old, and you had to work your way up your whole life, and, and yeah. suddenly Napoleon comes along, and he's like, what, 35, and just kind of revolutionized everything. Right. So do you feel like that um, is still kind of baked into the culture, like, uh, as far as Germany is concerned? Totally, yeah. The yeah. school hasn't really changed, and you know, there's a lot. Of, I'm I'm following a guy who's a philosopher and a neuroscientist, and he uh, talks about uh, the education system. And, and his point is, we we cannot just change it or improve it. We need to radically revolutionize it, or you know, we, we run into a, a dead end road. It's 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 really not not great and it's, it's, it's yeah. the opposite of great it's, it's no fun to be in school <laughs> how do we revolutionize this Fabian because you know I've, I talked to Taylor Pearson uh, several episodes ago and you know he, he wrote in his book The End of Jobs that we need to invest in entrepreneurship you know going forward if we're going to become indispensable in this fourth industrial revolution this new economy that mm -hmm. we're creating uh, and the question is you know how do we, we train the skills necessary to survive and thrive in this new environment? Man, I don't have a solution how to improve school and then how to <laughs> revolutionize the system, but I think, you know, you can still go to school and you don't have to be get the best grades, uh, just get through somehow so you have something on paper because sometimes it's still necessary. I, my master degrees, I picked it up two years after I did the master. They couldn't even find it anymore, but I never showed it until now. And I've been working in at least 15 different companies or startups. But, you know, in this IT sector, it wasn't that necessary. But I think if you, if you think about school that, yeah, I just get through somehow, you know, I won't have the worst grades, but also I won't waste too much time to get the best grades. And then on, your, on the side, 
you do the things that really matter to you and that really create for you some sense of flow and meaning, uh, then you're good. No? And you know, taking into account that if you have an internet connection, no matter if you live in a slum in Nairobi or on Wall Street or wherever, you can get any education you like. I mean, MIT, Harvard, Yale, they're putting all their classes for free online. You can get the same education as someone who pays 250 grand for it. Um, just that you don't have the certificate. And even the certificate you can sometimes get now in, on, on, on the internet. So you can learn whatever you like. So I guess it's just about figure out who you are, figure out what your, what your, what your, your interests are, what, what, you're, what you're inclined to, and then get this education for yourself on the side while you're in school or anywhere else. Yeah, I just, re I just read this uh, article that was linked about these uh, millennials who are in so much debt that they're, they're trying to ask for forgiveness. They're in, they have so much student loan debt, you know, like $30,000. This is in the U.S. I think you get free uh, university education in Germany, right? Yeah, still pretty much free. <laughs> you guys are lucky, but, but, you know, graduates in the U.S. are not as lucky. You know, some, some people have 40000 in debt, and they're just they're leaving the U.S. They're going to live in Berlin. Uh, yeah. you know, so the collectors can't find them. But, I mean, you can get the same education and you can get a better education on the things that you're actually interested in on Udemy. You can buy a course for $10 and, you know, once right. you start getting clients, you have, a, you have a business, you have a job. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when, when we were driving the Land Rover through South America, um, we made this uh, video series about, you know, us being this nomad company, but also about other people who redefine work or education. And in Lima capital of Peru, I found a very inspiring person. She is called Valeria. And when, when Valeria was 13, she hated school so much that she went up to uh, her parents and said, Mom, Dad, I hate school. I will not go there anymore. And her father was a rock star, actually. So he was kind of rebellious. And he told her, all right, we take you out of school. You get a trial year. And in this one trial year, you prove to us that it's a good decision. So in this one year, she studied intrinsically motivated in front of her computer every day, six hours, photography, web development, coding, whatever. And with 14, she had this girly pinkish website that she just made for fun. Now, it turns out that a supermodel from Los Angeles finds this website in a forum because she posted it all over the Internet. And the supermodel was like, hey, I love your website. I want one, too. So Valeria was like, you know, fake it till you make it. All right, I'd make you one. Didn't mention how old she is or anything. And then a couple of weeks later, she picked up $800 from Western Union that she got sent by this supermodel from uh, Los Angeles with 14. And since then, she just works as an independent web developer. And, uh, and now it's like she's, she's in it for 12 years. And, and since she's 14, she's working in this. It's an amazing story. That's fantastic. So is this, this basically this really basic uh, pink sparkly website? That was all it was? Uh, not, not basic, I guess. I guess it was <laughs> for, for the times, like 12 years ago, it was quite... Uh. Good. No? <laughs> okay. I love that because I get emails from people, you know, all the time and I feel like they're coming from a place of fear because uh, <laughs> they, they think that they have to find the right vehicle and I'm trying to tell them it's not about the vehicle, it's about the driver, it's about you and as right. far as the vehicle is concerned, all you need is just a minimal viable product, just put something out there, get feedback, you know, promote it to the world, see what happens and if you have customers, you have a business. If you don't have customers, you go back to the drawing board. But don't spend, you know, they, they, want, they worry about, like, what's my product, what's my niche, what's this? You know, just, just implement something. Just implement it. Mm. That's what I try to tell yeah. people. That's great. Yeah, so, I think that's good advice. So, so what she did, she put up a site, and, and you said she, she promoted it all over forums, and, you know, there came her first client, a celebrity. Yeah, when she was 13. <laughs> $800 when you're 13, you're like a... That's a great. Queen. In Peru. In Peru, <laughs> that's what that's, that's what people make in two years sometimes. <laughs> that's fantastic. So, Fabian, there's so many uh, Fabian, excuse me. There's so many directions I can take this conversation. One thing I really like about you is you take any event in your life and you run it through this filter. You have like this frame where uh, you say that, for example, you say that you caught malaria in Africa, and that was the best thing that ever happened to you. Like, you know, most people would say, oh, I got malaria. Why is this happening to me? I can't believe this. You know, it must be karma coming back to get me. But you say it's the best thing in your life. I, I love how you, you frame things. Are you kind of like a, a stoicist or, or how do you 
run me through your thought process here. Well, I guess I wouldn't say that it's the best thing of my life if <laughs> the things that turned out from it wouldn't have turned out from it. I mean, it really was the best thing of my life because because of having malaria, very good things happened to me. So I don't know what it is, fate or luck, but uh, I guess it's it's not neither of those. I don't believe in fate or luck. I, you know, okay. So to to to, to get the malaria. Story just in, 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 in one minute. I had malaria. I was bound to bed. I was hallucinating. I had very crazy thoughts. I woke up spinning circles or woke up in the bathroom without knowing why I got there. And it's a good idea to keep your mind busy in that kind of delirium, feverish state. So I was very fortunate that I had Wi Fi. Uh, and so I just searched for random things like cat videos and the coolest world records. And one day I literally typed into Google the best job of the world. And I um, found uh, a, a job offer from a company in San Francisco with an online application form. I left it all blank. I wasn't looking for a job. Um, I only put in Fabian and my Congolese cell phone number. And I was very surprised that the next day I got a call. And, you know, I was just in it for the fun. So I kind of said whatever I wanted to say. And I didn't really want the job. And I went on the website immediately of the company and tried to figure out what they really do because I had no idea what job I applied for. But long story short, two weeks later, I was sitting in London wearing a suit, cut off my beard, my long hair. And I, had, I was working in a really cool startup and in San Francisco too. So and after two years of being in this company, I found my own company because of everything I learned there. And now I have my own company. And that was all because of, of this weird random idea of Googling the coolest job of the world while I was lying in bed having malaria. So that happened. And it, it, it's great. It's, it, it really was the best thing of my life because now I have all the freedom of the world. I have a very good running company. I have a couple of employees and freelancers working with, with, with us. So that's great. But, you know, if, if we take a step back and look at, what happened there? I think it's not fate or luck. I think, and there's a great study, study which, uh, which shows this. They took 100 people who said, I'm always lucky. And then they took 100 people who said, I'm never lucky. And they gave them a task. And the task was flip through a newspaper and count how many pictures are in this newspaper. Now, it turns out that the subtitle, every picture had a subtitle, but below three of the 160 photos, uh, the subtitle said, if you read this, then you get $10 from the guy who's running the experiment. Now, in the group of the people who said they're never lucky, nobody ever reported that they read this text because they didn't read it. But the people who said they were always lucky, many people went to the guy who ran the experiment and said, hey, I read on one subtitle that it says that, it, uh, that I get $10 if I report that I read the subtitle. Now, it wasn't the task to read the subtitle, but they did it anyway. So maybe there's no luck or fate. Maybe it's just people who are looking left or right, who are reading between the lines, who are not exactly doing what you're supposed to, but doing things that are a little bit to the left, to the right. Maybe that's the definition of luck. And I think that's what, um, what, what, I, what I always did, you know, not just not, not following the rules too much and, and looking left or right. Yeah, that's great. I think you can't be too myoscopic, I guess, is the word in your in your vision or what it is you want to do, I guess, because, you know, you might focus on one thing, um, but then other opportunities come and you, you never expected them. But as long right. as as long as you are focused on moving forward, then these things will present themselves, I guess. I, th I think that's that's it. <laughs> OK, I mean, I have my own schools of thought about this, like, uh, you know, well, I could go on about this, but I don't I don't want to for too long. Um, but I think that's great because, you know, people think of, you know, they look at one thing as a metric of success. They look at, you know, money as a success, but they don't look at things like, um, you know, sometimes you just got to get your, your name out there and sometimes you just got to, um, you know, or build your mailing list or do this or that. And, and there's nothing that's really bad as long as you make an effort at something, you know, even if it doesn't, you know, make the money that you wanted or, um, you know, it doesn't have the same success. Like you still learn something from that experience. You still gain something from it, I guess. Yeah, it's like Joseph Campbell, one of my favorite philosophers, uh, who says, if you follow money, if you lose money, you have nothing. But if you follow your bliss, if you lose the money, you still have your bliss. I mean, you're still doing what you really want to do. 
<laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, anything you want to add on this this topic before we uh, shift gears here, or? Um, well, <laughs> it's it's interesting. No, you know what? Uh, the, the reason I went to Africa is because at, at one point I walked out of the office and there was this guy sitting on the street playing a guitar and it was a backpacker guitar, the guitar I just wanted to buy. And I walked up to him and uh, asked him if I can play the guitar. And he said, yeah, uh, feel free. So I played. And while I did this, he told me this crazy story that he went to. He was from Barcelona. He was at the beach. And uh, he met a girl in a camping car who gave him LSD and they took it together and he fell in love with her. So she was on her way to Africa. And then he went home, got his passport, told his parents to sell everything he has, and <laughs> drove with her off to Africa and he didn't come back for four years. So I was like, what? Isn't it dangerous to walk, to drive through Africa in an old car? And he said, no. And he basically took away all my fear. And then I did the same. I, drove an old Mercedes from Berlin to, to Africa. But you see how absolutely random this was. No? And some people would say this is luck or it's destiny or it was meant to be like in this Paulo Coelho alchemistic kind of way. And, you know, I, when I was younger, I, I kind of believed in, in this and I saw my, I, I saw like my life is this, this, this way I'm going and there's all these signs to the left and to the right who are predetermined to be there and it's now my task to either recognize them or not. But I don't think that. I mean, that would mean that there really is a predetermined way, and I don't think there's any evidence for that. But, you know, what I think is, I could have gone to the next street corner, and then there would be a guy who was sitting on the street, and he would have told me, go to, you know, Sri Lanka. And then I would have done that. So it's not about that this guy was there for a reason, or on this particular place and time, because he was put there by some higher force to lead me to Africa. It was that I am just opening myself up to all these different external stimuli and then engaging in them if it sounds like a good story. You know, and there's, um, uh, that's serendipity, you know, things that happen that without you planning for it. And I loved the way that uh, George Carlin, the comedian, once explained that when he said, how his creative process works. He's saying, you walk through life and you get an impression. So maybe you're walking through the street and you see a, an ad for an Africa slideshow. Now maybe you take a picture on your phone. So you have the first impression, which is seeing it with your eyes. Then you take a picture, you have a second impression. And then you go home and maybe you put it in your Evernote or you write it in your diary or whatever. And then you have a third impression. Now by that moment, your brain is trained. It's trained for... Uh, filtering the world for anything Africa. Now, if you walk down the street and you overhear a conversation from somebody who says something about Africa, the probability that you walk up to this person and engage in this conversation is higher than if you not would have primed your brain to look out for anything Africa. So I think serendipity is also not something magic that happens. It's training your brain to look out for certain stimuli, stimuli in the external world, and then when it actually happens that you find the stimuli, it's just like things slipping into consciousness. And then we as humans think, wow, this is magic, this is serendipity. But what it really is, is that you train yourself to look out for these things and then grab the opportunities when they're out there. And I think that's, that's what I wanted to add. That's a great point you just brought out there. So it's about being receptive to what it is you want and then suddenly you, you see these things yes. as they occur. I, I noticed that when I was a young man, when um, suddenly I would see like some classic car, you know, like from the 60s or something, some vintage car. And then I'll go through the week and suddenly I'll see four or five of these cars. I'm like, what the heck? Yeah, where exactly. Are these, where are all yeah. these cars coming from? Like I, I never noticed them before but because you didn't notice them until you made that, that conscious, like, that's conscious yeah. signal and, and went off in your exactly, mind. Uh, yeah, and that happens when you buy a Land Rover. You know, nobody has a Land Rover. But if you have Land Rover Defender, which is this cubical, rectangular, big, three point five ton beast, and you drive through the world, whenever there's a Land Rover, they greet you, they help you. You know, you, uh, everything is full of Land Rovers from one moment to another because you have a Land Rover. It, it's, it's exactly what you say. <laughs> so what was, what was the, that was by George Carlin, right, that, that advice? Yeah. 
Yeah, and he got this idea from a book called Psycho-Cybernetics. Yeah, Psycho-Cybernetics. That was written by uh, Marx, right? Mike Marx? Uh, I have no idea. Okay, because I know that uh, Dan Kennedy, you know Dan Kennedy? Uh, rings a bell, but not really. Um, well, he, he did uh, the new Psycho-Cybernetics, uh, okay. which, which is, I guess, a republishing of that book. But, uh, okay, here's the original one, Maxwell Maltz. Have you read uh, the Psycho-Cybernetics, Kevin? No. You I haven't? haven't? Uh, uh, sections of it. Okay, well, yeah, I've, I've read parts of it too, but, but Dan Kennedy talks about it a lot. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll mention things like he'll use tickler files, what he calls uh, tickler files, okay. and basically what he does is he's setting his mind to go in a certain direction. So, for uh -huh. example, like, if, if, Fabian, if I wake up this morning, uh, tomorrow morning and I want to uh, write about, oh, God, I don't know, marketing or crowdfunding or something, you know, some topic, I, I mean, I could do that standing still, you know, just like point blank, or I could start my mind going off in that direction, you know, suddenly like looking over other articles I've written, you know, based on a topic, reading other articles, you know, just having like little notes. To right. kind of just get my mind going that direction, I find that it's really helpful. Oh yeah, so sort of like a like a mind map. Yeah, a little bit. So so psycho cybernetics seems to be all about channeling the mind uh, to produce the outcome you want in the physical world. Uh -huh. I, I, I some might call yeah, and some might call it the law of attraction, which I think is total bogus. But you know, it goes in the same direction. That, that just that maybe we have a more rational model to explain it. Well, this is a really old book. I think a lot of the the subsequent books it was published in 1960. So a lot of the subsequent books by uh, you know like Law of Attraction, Tony Robbins, they they all kind of base their work on this original book. So I got to read yeah. this book cover to cover at some point. Oh, that's my <laughs> Me too. <laughs> We seem to be experts on it, even though we haven't actually uh, bought the book. Yeah. <laughs> the one-eyed man is uh, king in the land of the blind, I guess. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, all right. <laughs> so let me ask you, I mean, you obviously, you've learned a lot in your life. Uh, you've had so many experiences. Going to where you are today, I mean, as an entrepreneur, you must always be learning something new every day. What's your approach to learning and learning new things? Man, I think what you think is true for most of the entrepreneurs. For me, it just isn't. You know, I'm not learning anything uh, in the last uh, 12 months. I think I didn't learn any new new skill because what I do as an entrepreneur and what our company does is is a very repetitive, routinized work. For example, we do data migrations. That means you migrate data from one system to another. But if you once wrote the algorithm for that, you just hit a button and then it's happening. You know, or you know, we we design. FAQ pages, or we help training agents to use customer service tools in the best way, or we go to companies and see how we can make them use a customer service tool in the, in the best way. So it's, it's always kind of the same thing. You don't really learn and new things. You know, I was a developer before, and if, if you're a developer and you, you're going from startup to startup, you need to know the newest things out there, the newest plugins, the newest tools, whatever. But I use developing and, and programming just to solve problems. So my problem is how can I bring this 50 gigabytes of data from system A to system B? It doesn't matter if the script is not good or if the code quality is, 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 is not good because it's like a one-time thing. You know, All that matters is the output. So I guess in my case, I'm not really in the entrepreneur side of things that, that I do or I am. I'm, I'm not really learning too much new things and it's it's kind of boring i have to say at the moment that's why i'm looking to get into new directions but i have a lot of time and i'm not working too much so you know i just yeah. inscribed myself to to a university course so i'm going back to berlin and study documentary filmmaking and that's what i'm gonna learn um so i, I have a really it, i take it you're quite uh, mature in this career like you've been at doing this for a while so it's gotten to the, the point where it's, it's like second nature to you to, right. to do this routinized work. How, how long have you been doing your current business? See, everything I do now, I already did before with this job I got because of the malaria. And that, by the way, was Zendesk. It was, you know, many people know Zendesk, <laughs> some San Francisco-based uh, company. The, the coolest job in the world was Zendesk. Exactly, that was Zendesk, yeah. And it was really the coolest job of the world. I, I always said I would have worked there for free. And I really would have worked there for free. I would have paid to work there because it was just so much learning. The most amazing colleagues 
I ever had, the most motivated people I met in my whole life, and the best company culture I could even imagine. And I was also at the best, you know, at the right time at the right place where a, a startup that four years ago had 150 people and now has 1,200 people was growing like crazy. And, you know, I could match the job to my skills. I could design and change the job so it matches exactly what I wanted because it was so quickly growing soon, you know. That was, that, was, that was awesome. But everything I did there, I'm yeah. still doing now. So gotcha. you could say that uh, I learned everything at this uh, four years ago, and I'm still basically doing that. And then the last two years I had my own company, I was, I'm still doing what I did back in the days at Zendesk. So for four years I'm doing yeah. what I'm doing. I, I think I had the same experience with my, my first business was uh, a marketing agency, digital marketing. And um, like the first year or two, like I was, always, I was reading one book a week. You know, I was learning everything I could about business, oh. about marketing. Yeah, I was, I was taking courses and stuff. But Crazy. once I got like four years in, five years in, I just felt like everything was like, I had everything systemized. I had a lot of stuff outsourced. Um, everything was so easy at that point. But it was also boring at the same time because I didn't feel challenged. Yeah, right. Yeah. But that, that's when it gets really profitable and easy to manage. Yeah, and that, that's where I am. But, you know, I'm working two to two hours a week, uh, sorry, two hours a day maybe, and I, I wish sometimes I would have to work more. Like sometimes I'm just inventing work, so, so I have to do something. You know? like, <laughs> I, also, I also don't manage to then fill the other time with things that are really productive for myself, my personal <laughs> development. You know, Instead, I'm hanging out at the beach drinking Caipirinha in Rio de Janeiro right now. Um, so I have, I have a hard time to discipline myself if I don't have some sort of structure um, around me, you know. And, and the, 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 the dream that many people have of creating a business and then it runs automatically and so you hang out in a hammock in Bali, you know, that works for six months maximum. For me, it works three days and then I get totally bored of being in a hammock in Bali and I want to do something. <laughs> so I'm, I'm pretty bored right now. And that's why I just uh, decided that I'm going to study again. So I'm doing documentary filmmaking. I see that uh, that for me is the ideal way of combining traveling with producing something useful for the world. You know, digging into a certain topic like why tomato, tomato production in Italy influences African farmers or something like that. And then making a documentary film about it and hopefully something that benefits you know the the world somehow, um, but I see that because I'm 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 very I can I can focus on a topic extremely for a short time and then I I, I want to move on. So I see making documentaries is exactly what what rings my bell. Yeah, that's great, man. Startup Diaries uh, is really well done, man. Congratulations. I feel like oh thanks. Yeah, I feel like I was in your shoes uh, three years ago where I was just working two hours a day and. I was doing all this cool lifestyle stuff, but then the work, I didn't feel too passionate about the work because I've been doing it for so long. And then I was like, yeah. you know, what's next? And for me, it was to write a book. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I wrote the book. But, you know, like, I noticed, Fabian, like, you know, your, like, your purpose can change over time. You know, like, every yes. four or five years, like, you, you do one thing and then you get tired of it and you want to do the next thing. Um, so, so what's... So for next for you, like you want to, what, tell me about Startup Diaries. I mean, what's your mission with this? Well, Startup Diaries was, you know, it, it, it started about uh, a year and a half ago. I already had my company for, I would say, eight months. It was running great. Um, but, you know, my, 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 my approach, and that changed now, but my approach until now was always to, you know, choose the decisions in life which have the most anecdotal outcome. Not to tell the anecdotes to others, but to tell them to myself, to basically see life as an unfolding story, sort of like a movie. And, you know, when you go to a movie and you know what's going to happen, it's not that interesting anymore. You leave the cinema. So I was sitting in my office in Berlin and everything was running go. Uh, it was, was, was going great. But I could see where it was going. I knew I could grow the company, I could employ more people, I could make a lot of money if I wanted to, but it was all foreseeable. So whenever that happened in the past, there was like something, something has to change, right? I need chaos, I need uncertainty, I need surprises. So I went to the living room where the guy I employed, who's now with me here in Rio, 
was sitting and I said, dude, what do you think if we run our company from a Land Rover Defender? Because what happened is I was sitting in my office doing some data migration. I went on Facebook and I, I saw this guy was online who drove a Land Rover four years to Africa. And I said, hey, what should I do with my life? That, that was the only thing I wrote him. Because <laughs> I, I knew he's a good, good guy to ask. And he said, buy this Land Rover. And he pasted a link to a message board where somebody was selling a Land Rover in Buenos Aires. So I was like, hmm, I buy the Land Rover and then what? And he was like, well, maybe you can do one of these crazy projects you always do. I was like, okay, that sounds like an idea. Maybe we should run our company from this Land Rover. So I went to the living room and literally said, hey, Dominic, do you want to run our company from a Land Rover and crossing the South American continent? He was like, sure, man. So I wrote the guys on the message board and said, do you want to sell this Land Rover to me? And they were like, oh, you're German. That makes a lot of things easier because we're Germans too. The paperwork is going to be so easy. So it's standing in Buenos Aires. You can pick it up here and there. So I bought the Land Rover. And we took another guy who we knew with us, and then we flew to Buenos Aires and ran our company from uh, the Land Rover while we drove through the whole South American continent with the mission of documenting our challenges as being the nomad company. You know, we have daily calls. We have calls every day. We have only U.S. customers. We talk to those customers on a daily basis. Uh, so we have calls, we have data migrations, we have high-volume uh, operations that we run, we have critical stuff, we have clients like Virgin Atlantic and corporate customers like banks and whatnot. And we had to do this while crossing deserts and being stuck in the sand and going through the jungle and all that. Uh, so the documentary is about that, how that's possible, but it was more importantly about other people, other people who, you know, the Che Guevara's of work, the people who say no to a nine-to-five, no to organizations, hierarchy, suit and tie, but the people who create their own, I don't know, their own business and who come on the skateboards to work and to work in co-working spaces or who leave school and then are like Valeria and have their first client with 14 years. These kind of people, we tracked down and interviewed them. We, we also talked about you know, the South American accelerator programs like Startup Chile and all that interview those people too and yeah then we published it all on startupdiaries.org um, where the videos can be seen we still have two videos to publish there uh, and, and that was Startup Diaries <laughs> that, that's such a funny story <laughs> it's like hey this guy's selling his Land Rover in this forum let's, let's go buy it and we'll just travel around his Land Rover I, I love it you know the common, the common denominator here with you is if you have an idea like you just you don't mull it you don't really think about it for too long you just do it Right? You right. Just, this guy has a guitar. He just he's traveling around Africa. You're like, oh, that sounds like fun. I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm gonna buy the guitar. <laughs> I'm gonna travel Africa. You know why? What is it that separates you and someone who just like just makes a decision and does something versus all the other people who sit on the fence? I think no fear. Absolutely no no fear. I, I'm I, I'm not afraid of anything. Um, why aren't I'm, you afraid, Fabian? Maybe I'm just crazy, man. <laughs> you know. That might be an explanation. You know, some people are just born a certain way. You know, they they're just not afraid, or they just like to take risks. Do, so, you, do you feel you had some early formative experiences that made you that way? <clears throat> um, that's an interesting question. I I don't think there was anything that made me fearless. I think uh, that maybe just is genetics, biology. You know. I think my father was the same. Um, <laughs> so the rest of us are screwed then, huh? <laughs> that's the point. That, that's what I thought, man. Why should anybody be on a stage or why should anybody be interviewed about anything or say anything or write a book about anything? Because, you know, I'm me and you are you and he is he and she is he. And we're just who we are. So is it not that we all have to live our lives according to exactly who we are? And not give a damn about how other people are and what they do. <laughs> I have no, I have no answer to that. But you know, for some reason, there are people standing on stages and giving talks about what they did, and I guess it inspires some people. And I guess we can get inspired from others. No, maybe you know, maybe I'm fearless by fabric, but you know, because I'm fearless, I'm doing all those things, and I'm going to places where if you have a stereotyped. 
uh, mind, you would never go because the foreign ministry website tells you that you will be kidnapped and by Boko Haram suicide bombers and landmines will kill you when you go to Mauritania. But then because I'm fearless, I go to Mauritania and then I come back with certain stories saying that the people I met in Mauritania were the most noble and awesomely hospitable people that I ever met on the whole planet. And that might then change something in other people's mind who then would also go to Africa and realize that it's not a dangerous place. And so I guess there is, this, uh, there is some meaning and there is some sense in other people coming back with their stories from out there. I think part of it, what for you, part of the equation is you have these role models. You have these mentors like the, the gentleman who sold you the guitar, like uh, this, this person who told you to buy the Land Rover. Uh, right. I bet perhaps the people you surround yourself are, I guess, con contribute to your confidence a bit, would you say? Um, you mentioned, I, I you mentioned genetics. Like you, you obviously, your parents are, are pretty confident then as well, I take it. Well, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, okay. I, I also don't think I surround myself with people who are similar to me. Or it's, it's prob My friends are all like married and have kids and, and live in their flats they just bought, you know. And they don't do this kind of crazy things. But then I meet these random people on short-term basis, like the guy with the guitar or somebody I met while traveling who then majorly influenced me by, you know, in the example of the guy with the guitar taking away my fear. You know, you always have to meet someone who did something that you want to do or, or who inspires you to do it because if you see someone doing it, you know it's possible. And, and, and that happened in that case. And I think, yes, I, I think I, I replaced, uh, I, I found myself a few role models in literature or, you know, people who, famous people, you know, from the 60s or from 100 years ago who, who influenced me majorly. And, and I think that, that, uh, that took away of maybe a lot of my fear and, and, and implanted this mindset in my mind that everything is possible. And also, um, oh, and now I come back to the question if there was one travel moment which majorly influenced me, and there was. That was in 2004, I went to Chile for a year and I worked in a startup. And this startup was started by a German guy, two Cubans, two Canadians and a Chilean person when they were 19. So the German guy had to do civil service. He went to um, Chile and since then never came back. When I went there, he was already 30 or something. And they had these companies. I founded all these companies. But they, they went from living in a one bedroom with four people and eating ketchup and rice to having a company with 100 employees in the end of the 90s within two months. So working in this kind of environment with those people in, 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 in a country like Chile where everything is so improvised, where there's no rules, where you just have to make it work somehow, uh, you, you just get this mindset of that everything is possible. Uh, you develop a skill for creative problem solving and out-of-the-box thinking. You know, Chile was a place back then where at 4 a.m. in the night you would watch TV and then suddenly this TV program switches off and you see the Windows background you know, with the wild, with, with the green field in the background. And you realize they just clicked some VLC player and, and, and started some MPEG movie for their TV channel. <laughs> that, that's how improvised things were. And that's, I love to be at these places where things are not that thought out, where it's not just running as it's supposed to be, where it's improvised and where you learn how to do the same. And I think living in Chile and seeing how those guys totally winged it and made it happen for them, uh, that, that majorly Im Im influenced me, implanting this mindset of that the world is what I think it is, everything is possible, and if I want to, I can do it. Wow, that was beautiful, Fabian. <laughs> Dude, I'm singing still. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm nodding my head here because I, I can totally relate to everything you just said. I mean... You know, when I go to Asia or South America, like suddenly I see all these new ways of doing things, and and it just totally like rocks my world. Like totally, like my paradigm has just shifted completely. Like, yeah, wow. Like you know, the things that I thought were acceptable or not acceptable are are just are not true. Like in my my version of reality is subjective. It's not objective. And these people have another version of reality, and maybe there's something I can learn from from their lifestyle, from their way of looking at the world. Yeah.
exactly. Fantastic. Well, well, some great stuff uh, covered in this interview. Uh, I love this interview. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to add, I was really fascinated to hear your, your take on, um, you know, your confidence and your fearlessness. And I think for me, like, um, just doing stuff, you know, proving to myself that, you know, I had this fear and I just pushed through it, like, really helps a lot. I think just, just for me, at least, like, saying yes to things, saying yes to opportunities mm -hmm. as they come and just saying yes more and this turn the critical mind off and just go, just do it. Um, the more, like, you, you take those baby steps, those, those small wins, I feel like it adds up to, to confidence, um, you know, the ability to act when you, you see an opportunity. Uh, but I want to ask you, though, you know, I, I, I'd like to get your take on this because... When I was younger, when I was around 22, you know, all the way up through my 20s, I, I was really motivated to kind of prove myself, you know, like I, I felt like I was a hothead and, you know, I wanted to prove that I was worth something. But now that I'm 30, like I've done a lot of this stuff and I feel like I have to find a new motivation, you know, like mm. I, my life has kind of turned the corner because I've already proven myself. And, and now I guess the thing that motivates me is the, the prospect of impending death. You know, the fact that, that this, this time right now is running out. But I would like to hear you, Fabian, hear from you, Fabian. What's, what's your take on this? You know, what's, what motivates you? How would you, what's your take on the topic? Man, <laughs> um, I, I can totally relate to the thing with proving uh, yourself or myself. And I think I'm also sort of over that, um, you know, with driving cars for Africa and running companies from South America. It's, I think you've so, done that, Fabian. You probably yeah. accomplished that by this point. <laughs> it's kind of done. I might not need more of those kind of extreme uh, adventures. Um, and yeah, the question for me is what, what's next? You know, and some people, many people don't get to this question because usually you, you wind up in daily life, which means you're going to work and then you're happy when work is over and you switch on your TV and, you know, you zoom out and repeat and and for many people who you know i think we're both in a very fortunate position that we don't have to work so much anymore but uh many people don't even i i think don't don't even get to the point where you even think about these things because you're so 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 busy by uh, living so it's a fortunate position but it's also a really unfortunate position because uh i i have no idea what what, what what's coming next but I also know that if you just trust that something's going to happen and you open yourself up and you're not like, you're not like too focused on uh, finding out what's coming next, then it just magically happens for some reason. And I always stressed myself out, you know, after graduation, after this was done or that was done, after Startup Diaries even, I was always like, damn, what's next? I have no idea what to do. I felt lost. And I'm feeling a little bit lost right now too. You know, because I always need short-term goals and studying uh, documentary filmmaking in June, which is so far away from me, you know, it, it still leaves me with a couple of months where I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And, um, you know, I recently read this book from Derek Sievers who said, only do the things that make you say hell yeah. And I think I really like this advice, you know, because... <sighs> For me, 2016, I think, is also the year of saying no to a lot of things because I always said yes to everything. And also, you know, sometimes I felt like whatever comes, I'm going to do it. But then recently it started to not anymore like resonating with me, the things I was doing. So I really want to take a step back and really think about what is it that in myself creates a response of hell yeah, that I really want to go for this. And at the moment, I just don't know what that is. You know, it seems to be documentary filmmaking for now. But to answer your question, I have no idea at the moment what uh, motivates me. And that's terrible, but it's also amazing. Because then you have this empty space in yourself, which means you go through life, you know, looking for things and, and being open. And then I guess something's going to happen. Um, I have some slight ideas, right? You know, when I, when I gave this talk at TED at, in Bogota, it, it was TED Youth. So that was 15, 16-year-old children. I got a wonderful feedback from those guys. You know, I guess maybe one of the steps you can take after you prove yourself is that you take what you learn and you use it for 
the benefit of others, inspiring others, inspiring younger people, you know, not being the career counselor who says you can do A or B, but being the guy who didn't do A or B and did A to Z, and then come back to those kind of people, young people, inspire them, showing them that there's other ways, uh, you know, uh, pushing them to, to do what they, what they really want to do and, and being a role model for, for them. So I guess giving back is, is definitely part of, of what I want to do. Uh, in the future, but I haven't. If I was 20 really years old, wanted. I would want you to be my career counselor. Father. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to say that. <laughs> you, man. Don't, don't get there. <laughs> I don't want some guy in a cubicle, you know, on a swivel chair, uh, telling me what I need to do with my life. I want the guy who's driving the Land Rover across <laughs> South America to tell me what's next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's going in that direction, but at the moment, I, I have no idea. <laughs> We need more role models like you, Fabian. So I do hope that you pursue that and you continue to pursue that. And, um, you know, best of luck to you. If there's any way I can support you in this journey, I will. Man, thanks. Thanks so much for this interview. I think it was the best interview I ever had. And I think you're doing a, an awesome job for some reason. You, you, uh, you're, you're getting this, 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 this sentences out of me like no one else did. We had so many uh, potential quotes from this interview that we could use. Uh, <laughs> I think one of my favorite ones was, um, oh, God, I, I don't know. You, you left us with so much stuff here. I, I'm going to have to go through this again, and uh, I'm probably going to pull out like five or six quotes from this interview. Cool, man. It's great <laughs> <it>, stuff. <laughs> but I can totally relate to everything you've said during this call, and I'm glad I'm not the only one uh, you know, feeling these things. Like, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm exactly where you are, where I, I'm kind of scared to think, you know, what is my plan for five years or 10 years? Mm. I don't know. There's kind of like a, a chill of anxiety inside me when I think that far ahead. I just want to think about what I'm doing now, uh, my short-term goals. I don't really want to set goals that are more than one year long. Yeah. 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 You know, I don't know if you know this uh, commandment speech of Neil Gaiman. It's uh, at the University of Arts, and I really like it. Uh, and he's saying he saw what, where he wanted to get always as a distant mountain. And then he would get offers, you know, maybe a book deal or some, something, and that would pay well. But if he would think about this distant mo mo uh, mountain, it would not so much go bring him into the direction of the distant mountain than another gig that would pay him less, but be more into the direction, not maybe directly at the mountain, but a little bit to the left and the right, than, than this well-paying gig. And, and I think it's sort of important to have a little you know idea of what this mountain is for you so you can then align your decisions so they bring you not you know not necessarily exactly into the direction of the mountain but at least near there and i like really this this metaphor that you used with with this distant mountain yeah it's fantastic i have a couple of analogies of my own that are similar to that that mountain one but i'll just i'll just leave with that one uh I could sign this interview off right now. It's been a fantastic interview. I wanted to ask you one more question, uh, just because I'm being a little bit greedy and selfish here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your, uh, so your site, uh, helpbando.it, um, this is a customer service business, right? Uh-huh. How have you managed to, to create this uh, lifestyle business where you're working two hours a day in customer service? Because I imagine that must be, I don't know if you read the book, uh, Work the System. Uh, uh, no. But the guy, the guy who wrote uh, Work the System, he was actually running a call center, uh, Sam Carpenter, and, and he was like out of his mind, you know, he was, he was up all night, you know, till 4 a.m. He would sleep for two hours because he's answering the phone all night. He couldn't make the payroll, you know, and he was, he was losing his mind. And I imagine customer service must be, you know, very labor intensive. You have to be available uh, all hours of the day, right? So hmm. how have you, what's been the, the factors in your success, you know, maybe you could just Walk me through it real quick uh, from the inside so, out. So, okay, we, we are not doing customer service in a way that we pick up the telephone. You know, nobody calls, it's just out of the blue. Everything is scheduled. Uh, we are also not doing any customer service. We are helping companies, only customers. So it, it's only B2B. We're helping companies to improve their customer service by helping them using the cloud-based tools such as Zendesk, among others, uh, in the best way. That means we help them install them, configure them, look at the processes and see how to map their processes to the new customer service-based customer service tool. <laughs> uh, we 
uh, train their agents. We develop apps for them so they can integrate with their own backend and see, you know, 360-degree data on their customers while they're using their Zendesk, which runs in the cloud. Uh, we do data migrations if they want to change from Kayako or Freshdesk to Zendesk or they want to go from Salesforce to Zendesk. We take that data and bring it into Zendesk and all these kind of things. So what I'm mainly doing is data migrations. That means there's some source system and then you have to bring over 50 gigabytes of data to the target system, which in most of the times is Zendesk. Now, of course, you can't do this with your hostile Wi-Fi. You can also not do it in the desert. But you can have a migration server, which is somewhere in the U.S. and has huge hard drives and huge bandwidth. And then all you do is remote control this migration server. So you lock onto the migration server and you say, read this 50 gigabytes of data. I can do this with my edge phone connection, meaning I'm stuck in the Peruvian desert and I don't have 3G, I don't have 4G, but I have edge internet. Very slow. That's still enough to lock onto the migration server and issue these commands to read and write data. So I literally did these high-volume operations from uh, the Peruvian desert, you know, making thousands of dollars by, <laughs> in, the, in the desert, which was kind of a nice experience. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's what I do. So there's a lot of planning. Like, okay. like I, I, I get to the point now. So... So we have calls every day. For, for, wait, but, so, so, so sorry, yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but, but so, so for me, what I get is that it's two, two parts. That One is um, your exp expertise and your experience at performing the, these procedures. And then two, you have a very process-oriented business. It's very process-oriented. It's small projects. It's maybe, you know, a long project would be a month. Uh, the average time of a project from starting the communication with the customer to the end of the project is two weeks. So, you know, it's, it's very easy to schedule. It's very easy to say, okay, now I'm going to fly to Jamaica and the internet there is not good, so I have a week of nothing, so I just can plan ahead very well. But we have calls a lot, and calls are the enemy of, you know, driving your Land Rover through the desert because they right. need a good connection at least. So that, what we that, do that's is... That's what I wanted to get at too, is like how are you managing this, you know, like without going insane? Like, you know, how have you gotten to the point where right. you're working two hours a well, week and able to... We went insane. <laughs> oh, you went <laughs> insane. Okay. Yeah, we went insane too. So you but, went to you know, the brink, but then you process. came back. How did you... Tell me about the, the journey of coming back <laughs> on the brink. Um, it's, it's about using the right tools too. Like, um, you know, usually when a customer wants to call, they're like sending an email, hey, Fabian, I need a call. And then they obviously don't say where they're located because you know they don't think about that. And then you're like, hey, are you PSC or ESC or Mountain Time or uh, GMT minus two or whatever? What are you? And then they say, oh, we're in San Francisco. And then you're like, oh, okay, PST. And you go to the calendar and you do all these calculations in your head. Uh, uh, then you're like, okay, I have these two options here. You send these two options to the customer. And they're like, no, I can't do it. What about tomorrow, 3 p.m. PSD? And then you go, oh, what is PSD, 3 p.m. tomorrow? So it's like five emails until you have a call, right? So we have Calendly, which is this awesome scheduling tool where you just send a link to the customer and then you're like, hey, choose a free slot wherever you like. And then the customer sees this in his time zone and when he books it, it's right in your Google Calendar. Nobody else can book a slot there. So that was a major improvement. But then let's say we would drive from Santiago de Chile to Lima, Peru, which is four or five days of driving. We can't do any calls there. So... Dominic and me, my business partner, we would say, okay, we have now four days of driving, so we would put these big blocks in our Google Calendar, which are called Driving to Lima. Now, when the customers have the schedule links, they can't schedule calls there. They are forced to schedule the call for the fifth day when we knew that we were in good Wi-Fi Lima. So on this fifth day, we had like 10 calls, all bundled on one day, one call after the next. So we, we would kind of brickwork through, factory assembly line through the calls, and then, you know, stuck around for, uh, for a week we could, so we could do all the projects and then we would drive again and block time. So it was just the usage of the right tools in the right way, uh, outsourcing work to the client because the client does the scheduling work now. And, and that's just one example, but we found many other ways of, and many other tools uh, that we could use to improve our, our workflow with. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Batching activities is really powerful, I think. And it's, it's great when you can batch them by the day. 
you know, rather than, than do like two interviews and then you're doing some coding work and then you have to answer some right. emails because your, your brain has to stop and start and stop and start and stop and start. Yeah, and on, also the time pressure was great. You know, in Berlin I would sit around eight hours a day, ten hours a day. My friends were all working, so I was like, oh, it's 1 p.m., I'm done. But the usual, the normal <laughs> people get out of work at 5 p.m., so I better sit around and do nothing. Uh, or, you know, I work, I work slow and stretch the task until it's five. Uh, if, if, if you know that you have to drive through the desert and you already have a time window of one hour before you have to start driving and your internet is gone, then you're just super focused. You don't check Facebook. You don't look at every email in the minute it comes in. Yes. You just batch away things. You write 15 emails in 15 minutes just to get it done. And then you realize it makes no difference if you put in five emails per email or if you just bullet point the facts out in one minute. It makes no difference. And it also makes no difference if you respond to the email four hours later or at a certain time per day, as Tim Ferriss would suggest, or if you respond to them immediately when they come in. It makes no difference. Yes, and I actually have a couple of things to, to say about this. Uh, one is, okay, they're kind of related, but one is I think that I read that we multitask. The reason that we enjoy multitasking is because emotionally we feel... Mm -hmm. Sorry, there's, there's a little bit of background noise. No problem. Uh, when we multitask, um, we emotionally, it's because it makes us feel good emotion. Like we get emotional satisfaction even though we're not accomplishing as much. Um, because when we single task, you know, we, we're really focused and it seems like we're making slow progress. Um, but we don't get like that same emotional satisfaction. That's one reason why we multitask. Uh, <laughs> sorry, these people are, won't stop laughing here. <laughs> Uh, and two, like I know that sensation that you're talking about, where you're just in that zone, where you have that time constraint. For me, like um, I would go, I actually deliberately try to do this because I would go on like a bus or a train, and suddenly like I'm super focused because I don't want to sit on a train for three hours, you know, traveling somewhere yeah. while everyone else is playing Candy Crush. I want to be, you know, doing something productive. So like yeah. I, I would actually go in the mornings here in Bangkok, and I would go on the SkyTrain, and I would just start writing on the SkyTrain because I have no internet there, I had nothing to distract right. me. And something about being in that zone, having that sensation where I have nothing to do but write, but I feel okay about it because, you know, I'm commuting or something and I'm still being productive about it. And I just, yeah. you know, I feel like I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah, it's a SkyTrain. It's a Land Rover. When you're in the Land Rover and there's desert all around, you know, I work differently. I code. I just don't code in a way that it solves the problem because I have all the time of the world. I write better code. I write more reusable code. So everything improves. Uh, if I write it, you know, you have all these start email that you never answer because they demand like a longer demand. But if you have five hours of driving with no internet, you just answer them. Or if you write emails, you write them better emails if you don't have any distractions. Like emails where you already think ahead. What kind of questions could the customer have? And then you give answers to those questions and then you avoid a lot of email back and forth. Uh, because you have no internet, which means you cannot check Facebook, no ping, so bing is coming in, so which can distract you, and you, you can just focus on something. And I have a big business idea. I hope nobody steals it from me now because I want to do it. But what we should come up with a safe, a time lock safe, where you lock in your iPhone, your computer, and the keys to your flat for let's say six hours, and you can't get out. There's only one way to get out, which is like, let's say, putting in your credit card and paying $20 to unlock the safe before the time out in case, you know, there's an emergency and your flat burns. But that's it, you know. So <laughs> I, I would totally buy that. And then I would lock in all my stuff and my keys to the flat to just be able to focus for eight hours. <laughs> I would lock myself into <laughs> a safe. <laughs> <laughs> Can I pay you for that? Can you lock me in? Um, sure, but I might not uh, come back in eight hours. I'll just take the money and run. <laughs> <laughs> and take the Land Rover. <laughs> uh, maybe I should just lock me in the Land Rover then. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's yeah, great. I, I think the biggest productivity hack is just attach the uh, backside to the chair and just sit there and work. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and uh, cats and dogs help. If they're like around and lie around, you know. Really? It's like, ha it's like having someone who also works, you know. He's not doing anything, he's just there. <laughs> that's, what <laughs> that's what people say, you should have your dog around. I watched this uh, video, it was, do you know Haka, Fabian? Haka, no. Haka, it's like this ritualistic dance they perform in New Zealand where they're doing these postures and 
they're making faces and they're sticking out their tongue and then gorging their eyes to show the whites of their eyes. So uh. it's, it's by the Maoris of New Zealand. And I, I just watched this video and I, I became so fascinated by it. You know, they do this whenever they encounter a challenge like an opponent or a wild animal or an enemy. And, and whenever I'm, I'm like getting ready to work, like I, I find that just doing these like haka movements kind of just gets me like, all right, I'm charged up, I'm ready to go. And uh, it's, it's been working for me lately. Whenever I, I encounter that, like, that resistance or that, uh-huh. that doubt, you know, like, oh, should I, should I do this? And Okay, <laughs> let's, let's do it. <laughs> that's that's yeah, the fact that's been working for me. See, it's like before you're going to a presentation, you stand in front of the mirror and pound on your chest like a wild monkey. <laughs> yes, it's, it's that anchor, you know, that creates the state, that creates yeah. the state of mind you want. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they even have this study where they put people into two different positions. One is like very introverted, like your your your, your legs together, your arms like uh, your hands together, stuck between your legs. And then the other people they put into position where they put like their arms on the next chair and spread their legs like this kind of macho position. And then they measure the testosterone level in their in their salvia uh, in their saliva, and it's much higher just because of your body posture changing. It actually influences the hormone production of your body. Wow, so it actually changes the physiology, the physiology of your body. Yeah, it's like your mind follows the body and the body follows the mind. Hmm. Very fascinating, yeah. very cool. Wow, well you left me so much, uh, you left us with so much stuff to, uh, you know, I'm going to go back and re-listen to this interview a couple of times and I'm going to, you know, Google all the quotes you left us with, you know, George Carlin's advice, the experiment you just mentioned now. <laughs> and uh, I've learned a ton. Thank you so much, Fabian. Well, thank you. I had a really good time. It was the best interview I, I ever had.